From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. So our goal this week is to produce a podcast for you that is 98% distinguished or proficient. I bet we can do it, Kevin. What yeah, do you I'm, think? I'm feeling pretty good. I, I like our odds. So with that kind of a snarky intro, you know it's time for one thing and one thing only. It's time for the annual look at uh, teacher evaluation scores. You broke down the numbers again this week, Clark. Feels like more of the same in a lot of ways. It, it is more of the same. And once again, we found that uh, an overwhelming percentage of Idaho's 18,800 educators received the top marks, one of the top two overall scores on their evaluations. Uh, I partnered up with our data analyst, Randy Schrader. He's a former superintendent of the Garden Valley School District, someone who's done evaluations in his career. And we've really actually looked at this the last four or five years, ever since the legislature passed that 2015 career ladder law. And that really is important, and that's why we started looking at evaluations because, and this is kind of controversial, but the legislature has now tied, partially tied, a teacher's ability to earn higher pay through the career ladder to their performance on evaluations. And it really comes in, Kevin, as you know, at the beginning part of an educator's career when they're looking to jump from that initial rung on the career ladder to that second professional rung and earn higher pay in the process. And so that's why we've taken a close look at evaluations. And I, and I guess a close look is how I would describe my goal for presenting this article. I talked to a couple of superintendents mm -hmm. who perform evaluations. Uh, I talked to Charlotte Danielson a couple of summers ago. Uh, she's the education consultant who developed this evaluation tool that the state of Idaho and many states use. Yeah, her framework is, is the template. The Danielson framework. It's named after her. Um, but let's just get into a little bit about what we looked at and, and what we found. The evaluations are actually required by Idaho law and Idaho rule, and they're not so different from evaluations you may get every year in your job. I know I get an evaluation every year, and so, but it's a little bit more state, high stakes here in Idaho mm -hmm. uh, with the teachers uh, because of the career letter and because of the performance aspect of it. But uh, again, we found 18,800 Idaho teachers. We requested the data from the State Department of Education. It's their data, not ours. Uh, we just reported on it, and we found that 98.1% of teachers earned the top one of the top two scores on their evaluation, and that those scores are proficient and distinguished. By the way, that's that's what we're looking at there, and that's actually the highest amount statewide in the last five years. It's always been kind of between 96 and 98%. This is actually the highest amount that we've documented in the last five years. And that that's significant in and of itself. What I also found significant as I read the story was some of the reaction that you got in the story. You referenced your interview a couple of years ago with Charlotte Danielson, but you also talked to, to Bill Gilbert, uh, who is the co-chair of Governor Brad Little's Education Task Force, to get his take on what these numbers say to him. And I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and I thought that was interesting, and I appreciate him uh, kind of speaking, speaking candidly about this. And, and he was very clear that He's not an educator, he's not an administrator, uh, but he is a business leader. And he said that if we think about it logically, all evaluations should not look the same. That even in a business, and he suspects a school, where you've got a culture of growth and a culture of achievement, you wouldn't necessarily expect all the evaluation scores 
to look the same. And so that was an interesting point that he made. But I think it really is interesting because the task force, there are some rumblings that they're looking at teacher evaluations, that they're looking at master educator premiums, that they're looking at the career ladder. And, and that's also a point that Charlotte Danielson made to me two years ago. She said, you might consider it a red flag. And the exact percent that she used was 98% before, and this was two years ago, but she said, you might consider it a red flag if 98% of some teachers out of a large sample size all earn the same top marks. Um, she said it's not necessarily designed to do that. And so I think that that's really interesting. But on the other hand, I talked to Becky Meyer, mm -hmm. the superintendent of the Lakeland School District, who's sort of been outspoken about the legislature tying evaluations to performance and how the news media, including Idaho Education News, has reported on this. But I spoke to Becky Meyer, and she told me it's actually a really good sign that the data backs up what she knows in her heart, which is that Idaho's teachers are doing a great job and that superintendents and administrators and leadership teams are doing a great job hiring. She said that we expect our teachers to be performing at a proficient level because that's the most important aspect of a child's education in school is their classroom teacher. She said if they are at, say, a basic level on their evaluations, Lakeland, only speaking for Lakeland, for her own district, she said gives them an opportunity to get on an improvement plan, but if they don't do it in a year or two and get up towards proficient, the district doesn't really want them around. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I thought that, that was interesting. But I do want to point out one other thing Student achievement by state law and by state rule is required to be factored into all of these teacher evaluations. And so I just thought it was interesting that at a time when 98% of all Idaho teachers, and now we know 98% of all Idaho principals right, are earning the top scores of proficient or above on their evaluation, only about 44% of Idaho students are proficient or above on their standardized tests and math. Only about 55% of Idaho students are proficient or above on their standardized tests in reading and English language arts. And there's a lot of different ways that school districts might look at student achievement when they factor it into evaluations. And they may not just be looking at raw proficiency scores, they may be looking at growth or closing achievement gaps. And so there's a lot of different ways that you can look at this. And I guess that's the one thing that I wanna get across is this is a complex issue, right? and it's controversial, and people have very strong feelings about that, and that came out in some of the comments that we've seen this year and in previous years, but it is a complex issue, and so I tried to, if you head over to idahoednews.org and, and look at our homepage, I tried to cover a lot of different angles and sides to this story, to share our work, to present a lot of different data, uh, and hopefully let readers make up their mind on what's going on, but we want to acknowledge that it is a more high-stakes environment now that the legislature has tied these evaluations to performance and to salary. And I do think, you know, it, it, it's always going to be in my mind that we have found and documented at this point over the previous years a couple of isolated incidents where superintendents falsely reported evaluation right. scores to the state of Idaho. That's not just There's me saying a, that. That's the Professional Standards Commission from the state of Idaho. There's still a cloud that. That, that hangs over this issue. There's no question about it. And, yeah, it's a sensitive topic. Not mm -hmm. only are these high-stakes uh, evaluations and there's money tied to them, it's a sensitive issue. I mean, and I'm, 
you know this better than, than me. You've been the one writing about this for four years. I mean, it's been your name on the stories. I mean, people do take this very, very much to heart. And, you know, the stories are not suggesting that, you know, there's something, this is not designed to impugn Idaho teachers. I mean, I've talked about this, that, you know, I've had two, two sons go through the Idaho school system, through the K-12 system. And I would say that the vast majority of the teachers that they have are good teachers. They're they're dedicated. They're smart. They're 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 proficient. They they, they really and they really care about kids. But that ninety eight percent number, I mean, it it it, it kind of do get kind of hung up on it. And I I compare it to our line of work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, I, most of our colleagues in journalism are dedicated and smart and talented and resourceful. I don't think I would call 98% of my colleagues uh, distinguished or proficient, and I'm not going to name names, and I'm not going to get into a Twitter war here or anything like that, but that 98% number, that's a hard number to, I have a hard time wrapping my head around that. Year after year, with exceedingly large sample sizes to come in about the same spot every year, and we're not trying to say that we think Idaho teachers are bad. We do believe and agree that the vast majority of Idaho teachers are excellent, like Becky Meyer said, but the 98% is a little bit of a red flag, especially when you consider that student achievement has to be factored in, and especially when you have to consider that Idaho is at a record right now for the number of teachers who have entered the profession on some sort of alternative certification. Mm -hmm. That means that they didn't go to a four-year teacher uh, uh, preparation program at college. They didn't have the benefit of a long mentorship. They didn't have the benefit necessarily of student teaching. So the evaluations could provide these teachers with the kind of feedback that they may not have gotten as much of before they entered the classroom. And when I talked to Charlotte Danielson, she told me, and this is the person who designed the evaluation tool, that basic doesn't mean you're a bad teacher. Basic can be a degree of good or growing towards good and proficient. Mm -hmm. And she said that's not shocking. Uh, or unexpected or controversial because teachers at the beginning part of their career, especially if they're under an alternative certification, may not have a lot of experience with curriculum development or assessment or uh, classroom management or dealing with uh, complex communications issues with parents or student behavior, all these types of things. And that's, that sort of makes sense if you think about it, right? They're at the beginning mm-hmm. of their yeah. career. They're learning and growing. Uh, you know, I'm not saying they're doing harm by being in the classroom, but they may not be quite up to the highest levels yet. And I think that's okay. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. It comes down to how do you drill down to these definitions? What yeah. do you mean by basic and proficient and distinguished? And, and we've also found, uh, we followed some State Board of Education and college and university reviews of the teacher evaluation data. And, and what they found, even in recent years, is that up to about 25% of the evaluations that were reviewed did not fully follow state law and state rule in terms of being handled correctly or including the proper number of documented observations or measuring all the components and domains on the Danielson framework. And so, I I don't know, I, I absolutely do believe that the vast majority of Idaho teachers are excellent teachers, are doing a great job, are helping our students learn. Uh, but the 98% gave me and some other people a little bit of a pause. But I also wanted to present a lot of different sides to the story. And I think Becky Meyer has a point when she says the data backs us up that 
that we're doing it well, that we're doing teachers it right are improving, here. And the teachers who aren't improving are, are moving on to a different line of work. And, and I think that was interesting to, and I'm glad Becky talked uh, to me because we get into a section of that article where we explain how that district approaches it. And it seems like they're really methodical about it. But I know that we kind of get into the weeds, and so I appreciate you bearing with me. Uh, we had two stories this week, August 4th on Sunday. We had a story about the teacher evaluations. And on Thursday, August 8th, we had a story about the principal evaluations. If you want to seep your teeth into the data, see some of the work that we've shown, uh, look at some of those almost case studies that I have in there, the homepage, idahoednews.org, is going to be probably the best place to find yeah, that. These, these are good stories. You can dig into the data and the detail, of the, and, and you should. All right. Uh, I want to switch gears real quick, Kevin, and talk about... Uh, these common core hearings that the state is going to be holding over the next week or two. Let's talk about what they are and what they are not. Right, right. So this is turning into the summer of hearings. Yeah. I mean, between the task force and, and its various uh, subcommittees. This is on a different plane. And um, if your eyes glaze over when you hear things like public hearings and you uh, hear uh, terms like administrative rules, I understand. These could be quite interesting because... Uh, the State Board of Education is going to hit the road starting uh, August 19th, a round of hearings uh, to talk about, um, again, your eyes are going to glaze over when I say this, uh, rules governing <laughs> thoroughness. Boy, I'm a, excited. A 37-page, uh, you know, it's a page-turner. It is, it's kind of this comprehensive rule uh, on a lot of education topics, but in this rule are kind of encrypted the standards that you know, put the Idaho Core Standards, Idaho's version of Common Core, into the classroom. If you read the 37 pages, you will not find a standalone section that talks about Idaho Core Standards. It, it just doesn't exist. It's not there as neatly and as tidily as that. But the academic standards do align with the Idaho Core Standards, which were adopted in 2011, have been revised some here yeah. and there since then. Common Core is a hot-button issue, you know, don't need me to tell you that. But we've really never seen much of a concerted discussion of Common Core and keeping Common Core at the State House. There's never really been, you know, there's been talk on the fringes about yeah. Common Core. There have been some legislators who've raised questions. Uh, I think there have been you know, personal bills that have been introduced oh, yeah. uh, to address Common Core, and personal bills are generally dead on arrival. They, they, they generally don't get hearings at the State House. So there's never really been much of a debate at the State House in the education committees or on the floor uh, of the House or the Senate about Common Core. And one thing I like that you pointed out in your article is that there is some support for Common Core among educators, but specifically former Governor Otter's, I think, 2013-era task force endorsed and supported Common Core, and that was kind of during the height of the national pushback against Common Core. Right. And so I think that's interesting. And, and I think also interesting, you know, that kind of sets the stage for this summer's hearings. Why are we talking about the Common Core rule yeah. that was passed by the legislature 2011? Well, go back to the end of the 2019 legislative session and that, uh, that log jam, that impasse that we saw over administrative rules over agency rules where the House and Senate uh, walked away um, you know, in discord over what to do about administrative rules. And that threw every rule in the book mm -hmm. 
into limbo, all 8,200 pages of it. So it gave Governor Little the chance to look at what rules to keep, what rules to edit, what rules to eliminate entirely. And he has eliminated quite a few rules, and he has edited quite a bit of rules. This rule is not one of them. They left Common Core intact, Common Core intact, and I've asked Governor Little directly about that, and he said, look, I did not want to use this process to rewrite state policy. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to use it as an opportunity to clean up the rule book, to make the rules more uh, user-friendly, uh, streamline the, the document, but not you know, create what he called mischief uh, in, in terms of just reworking state policy. Well, critics of Common Core, namely the Idaho Freedom Foundation, uh, see this as an opportunity, and I don't think they would use the word mischief, I think they see it as an opportunity to really reshape policy on education. So they've kind of led the push to have hearings on this rule and on Common Core. They did uh, online petitions and had hundreds of their members send in online petitions or sign online petitions demanding a hearing. And it really only takes like 25 people to demand a hearing. If you had hundreds of people pushing back about Common Core, pushing back about this rule, but you also had hundreds of people pushing so, back saying, you know, those science standards that are part of this rule, keep we want those. those kept intact. Yeah, so, we fought hard to get those. So these hearings, which start on August 19th, there's not going to be closure on Common Core. There's not going to be closure on science standards, but you're probably going to have this really interesting collision of interests on education rules, on education standards, because yeah. you're certainly going to hear people say, it's time to get rid of Common Core. Other states have done this. Um, other states have rewritten Common Core or you know, gotten rid of it entirely. And I think there are some folks in Idaho who are going to want to see Idaho follow down that road. Mm -hmm. You're also going to have folks, um, you, know, if, if the, you know, if what's happened so far bears out in the hearings, you're going to have people show up saying, we fought for the science standards. It took three years. Don't gut the science standards. Keep them in place. It's all going to come down then, then to the state board, right? who needs to listen to all these comments and process all these comments and decide what to do with this rule, whether they keep it intact, whether they make changes in it. Then it goes to the legislature for another round. That's where we may see uh, further debate about this rule, further debate about Common Core, further debate about science standards. So the stage kind of gets set here in the next couple of weeks with these hearings. Um, we'll have coverage from the hearings. Um, you know, a after eight years, this may be the most um, you know, public uh, referendum, if you will, on Common Core that we've seen. And I think it'll be interesting, and I think one thing, too, that I will watch as we go forward, I don't think, in terms of the critics of Common Core, I haven't seen them present an alternative set of standards. And I think that's really important because I don't know how you could just repeal our academic standards and, and not have something lined up to replace them with. Uh, we're required by the federal government to uh, do assessments um, and to assess to our academic standards. And so if we have no standards, what would we test at the end of the year? How would we gauge our project, uh, our progress towards our education goals? And so I don't think that it's going to be a situation realistically where you could just re repeal Common Core and, and, and feel good about it and whew, we did it. Uh, I think you need to have another set of academic standards developed and tested and best practiced and peer-reviewed uh, and assessments aligned to those and so it's not uh, just a, a simple wave a magic wand and this goes away and everything gets better. I also get a and sense... It's not only that, Clark. I mean, that's you're, you're right. I mean, it's a really gnarly 
complicated question of yeah. what do you do? If not Common Core, then what? Right. But this rule is so far-reaching. It's not just the academic standards, and I'm not trying to diminish the importance of sure. standards, but this rule also includes graduation requirements yeah. and assessment requirements. I mean, if you start to unwrap that rule and unravel that rule, how do you rewrite that? How do you replace that? I mean, this, you know, this opens up a whole uh, can of worms here, potentially. And I get a sense that some educators very much feel like, hey, don't rewrite our assessments every couple years. Don't give us new standards. Like, quit changing the game as we're playing it. Like, let us get comfortable with what we're doing, uh, teach our kids, and, and, and focus on student achievement. But, but don't give us new standards and, and, and new tests, and don't be changing everything uh, every two years. I, I, like, let us get used to what we have and, and do our job teaching our kids and focusing on student achievement. But I, I get a sense that, like, no more major changes. Don't just make a change for the sake of making a change. Uh, I think they want some predictability and stability and continuity and areas where they can really focus and, and focus on uh, education and, and, and student achievement and, and not be focused on, well, what's the newest change in policy that we have to adapt to? What's, what's the thing we threw out last year that we're going to change mm -hmm. this year? I, I think that there's some sort of fatigue and just let us do our job, okay? Tell us what you want, but, but let us do our job and get out of our way. And, and layered on top of all of this, and we heard it during the science standards debate, and I'm sure we'll hear it again uh, as this unfolds at the legislature, Idahoans question, why are legislators writing uh, academic standards? Why, why are they doing this? Well, as part of the rulemaking process, and the legislature has a, a very clear An oversight very coveted, role. Yeah. they covet uh, this role uh, of oversight over administrative rules, over agency rules. So that's why the legislature gets involved. But as the legislature gets involved in what do science standards look like, what does Common Core look like, what, what do any of these academic standards look like, uh, there's pushback at, at the same time from people saying, why, why is the legislature micromanaging? Yeah. Well, that's, that's how it happens. That's the procedural mechanism that, that leads to it. But there's skepticism about that as well. All of this percolates and all of this kind of factors into what I suspect we're going to hear in the next couple of weeks on the hearings. We have the full lineup of the hearing dates and times. Uh, so you can see uh, when when these hearings are coming to your I think part like of the state. Like you said, four locations throughout the four state. Four locations around the state: Nampa, Twin Falls, Coeur d'Alene, and Idaho Falls. We've got the dates and the times. Um, we've got the address if you want to submit written comments or email your comments. And what I tried to do with the story is sort of lay out how we got here, where we're going, um, try to set the stage for the hearings. It's it's complicated stuff. I mean, we've been writing about this whole rulemaking and rule revision process uh, a lot since the end of the 2019 legislative session. The rules process is complicated to begin with. This is even more complicated. So I tried my best to break it down, uh, make it digestible, make it understandable. But these are going to be some interesting hearings. Yeah, for sure. Uh, head over to IdahoEdNews.org if you want to find out a little bit more about that or when there is going to be a hearing coming up this month in your region. One more big topic that I know we want to talk about this week, Kevin. In the, la in the wake of this sort of dust-up between the legislature and our institutions of higher education over diversity initiatives, you took a closer look at the Idaho Opportunity Scholarship, which appears to be very much at the heart of, of that debate, at least as far as some legislators are concerned. But why did you take a look 
at Idaho Opportunity Scholarship demographics of recipients and, and, and how does it play into this debate and what did you find out? Well, let's, let's set up you know, why we went here. Yeah. I mean, as part of this ongoing debate over uh, diversity programs and inclusion programs on college campuses, we're starting to hear rumblings of a push regarding the Idaho Opportunity Scholarship, specifically with people who are in Idaho under the DACA program, yeah. uh, dreamers uh, in, in the vernacular. Nicole Foy, our, our colleague at, Idaho, at the Idaho Statesman, she broke the story about a week ago that there is, uh, there is, there's an email trail that suggests that some legislators and, again, the Freedom Foundation are pushing to repeal or outlaw DACA, DACA program enrollees from, from getting the Idaho Opportunity Scholarship. The Idaho Opportunity Scholarship, to backtrack just a little bit further, this is, this is a big linchpin in the state's efforts to try to get more high school oh, yeah. graduates to continue their education. It's a $3,500 a year scholarship uh, based partly on need, based partly on uh, grade point average. You have to hit a minimum GPA. The state is not meeting all of the demand. There are, thousands, there are thousands of students who are not getting the scholarship who are eligible. I mean, they, they have need and they have hit the, the GPA requirements. There's just no money for them. This has been a controversial scholarship program at the legislature already. Mm -hmm. And now the DACA debate uh, further complicates the politics of this. So what I've tried to do um, to, to follow up on, on Nicole Foy's story was to, to try to get a sense of who is getting the scholarship right now. And here's what we don't know, and I want to make clear of yeah. what we don't know, because this gets sticky. Uh, the State Board of Education does not track how many dreamers are, are getting the scholarship. Uh, those numbers are not available. So what I did try to do was at least look at some of the other demographic numbers that the State Board does track. And I focused in on the number of Hispanic students who are applying for the scholarship and receiving the scholarship. Now, I want to say this clearly because there, we've gotten comments criticizing the story. Not all Hispanic students are dreamers. And for that matter, not all dreamers are Hispanics. I right. mean, it's, it's not a clean comparison. And I did not want to present it as a clean comparison. And I'm not presenting it as a clean comparison right now but it does give you a sense of some of the demographics. And what we found was that the number of Hispanic students who were applying for the scholarship, that's increased rapidly over the past few years. And last fall, about 21% of the scholarship recipients were Latino students, as opposed to about 16 to 18% of the graduating class is Latino. So you're seeing a, you know, a higher share of Latino students getting a share of this money. And from a state policy perspective, that's probably a good thing. And that goes right to what the state has been talking about trying to do. If you're trying to get uh, higher post-secondary numbers, higher post-secondary completion numbers, and you have low go-on yes. rates and college graduation rates in the Latino community as it is, this is exactly what the state probably wants to see happen. Yeah. Uh, you do want to see more Latino students applying for the scholarship, getting the scholarship, going to school, using this money to, to advance their education. So we just kind of wanted to get a look at what's going on demographically, knowing that if, if what we've seen over the past couple of years is any indication, there's going to be a long debate over this opportunity scholarship again. I don't know if Governor Little is going to push for another increase in the opportunity scholarship. 
again, unmet need. There are students who are not getting the money, even though the state has put a record $20.5 million into, into scholarships this year. But that $20.5 million budget, it barely passed the House this year. It passed 38 to 30. I know there was a lot of concern the last two years before this most recent issue came up. The last two years, when we talked about expanding that scholarship to a group that we call adult completers, but basically Idaho adults who have some college but stopped out at some point and are looking to return to school, that was highly controversial. That uh, led yeah. to lengthy floor debates and nearly... Uh, stalled that scholarship funding out at the legislature. Right, that was a flashpoint in the debate. And, and again, the proponents of the adult completer scholarship are saying, this is another thing that the state needs to do to increase its post-secondary numbers. Because goal. these students, these adults who have left school for any number of reasons. Starting know, a family, family, military you know, service, any You name it, any kind of life that intervenes and yeah. interferes with getting a college education. The proponents of that adult completer scholarship say, we've got to provide some path for, for these these folks to go back to school and get their degree, since they've already invested some time and money into, into getting a degree. That's been a really controversial concept uh, with, with some conservatives in the legislature. Now you factor in this whole debate over, uh, over inclusiveness. Yeah. And you factor in the debate over DACA. And I, I, think, I think the higher ed budgets are going to be very interesting to watch this next legislative session. I think this budget regarding scholarships is going to be very interesting to, to watch. Just based on what we've seen in the past and the debate that we've seen unfold just these past few weeks. It's really interesting because the state has adopted long ago at this point yeah. this population goal for 60% of Idaho's young adults to have some sort of post-secondary degree or even a technical certificate. Uh, stubbornly, the state has made very little progress. I think we're mired down around 43% or yeah, 42, so. 43. Yeah. Uh, haven't made much progress. And so you've got educators and folks at the State Board of Education who are saying accessibility and affordability are an issue. We need to get more students into our higher ed system, into our career technical certification programs, if we're ever going to make any progress on this goal, but then is the legislature sort of gumming up the works and hamstringing those efforts. It's really interesting um, because some people view scholarships as a key component to addressing the accessibility and affordability issues, which you've tracked time and time again in your reporting uh, on higher ed and some of the barriers to higher education. This is one of the tools that the governor and the state board are looking at but the legislature is very much pushing back against aspects of the scholarship. Right. And again, just to, to kind of bring it to closure, just to kind of humanize this, this issue, we're talking about a scholarship that maxes out at $3,500 a year uh, for four years. It's not just a one-shot deal. Yeah. Most students who are getting the Opportunity Scholarship are getting close to that maximum. I think the average was, I want to say it's close to $3,400 a year. Well, yeah. Think about, you know, if you've sent a kid to college anytime recently, $3,500 is a chunk of change. It is a big sum of money. It can be the make or break for, for families making that decision about whether college is affordable. And it even goes further than that. You know, when I talked to, to Scott Green, the new president at the University of Idaho, he said expansion of that opportunity scholarship was a big deal at the University of Idaho. Yeah because it allowed the university to come in behind that scholarship money. The state 
funded scholarship money with university scholarships that you know, the university raises on its own, its, its own scholarship funds, come in behind the opportunity scholarship, backfill and make uh, and cover costs across the board for some students. His point is, you, we can't do that without the opportunity scholarship. We need the state's support too, so that we can you know finish the job with with university scholarships. So this thirty five hundred dollars a year for for students is is a it's a big deal. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it is. If you want to get caught up uh, on, on that, head over to IdahoNews.org. Check it out. Check out all of our top stories uh, from this week. Our Eastern Idaho reporter, Devin Bodkin, has an update on the ongoing saga uh, with the Bingham Academy Charter School in Blackfoot. Uh, looks like they have a temporary, I want to say conditional use permit, uh, and they have a, a window of time to apply yes. for a permit to operate out of their facility for the upcoming school year. This has been something Devin has covered all year. Um, an important update there. Next week's going to be a busy week. I'll be, check, I'll be tracking the two task force meetings, like we mentioned, full task force on Monday, teacher pipeline uh, group on Tuesday. Right. So we've got the task force ramping back up. Also on Monday, the Boise School Board will meet. And on the docket is the question of mascots. Uh, the proposal to change Boise High School's mascot from Braves to Brave. Yep. Um, based on some of the social media traffic that we've seen already, that should be a fairly crowded and potentially very contentious hearing. I get uh, you caught up on that issue on my blog. I also get you caught up on the mascot controversy in Teton. Even though the school board has made a decision on the Redskins mascot, uh, there is still pushback. There, there are still folks up there hoping to persuade the district to reverse its decision and keep the Redskins mascot. So that issue has not exactly gone away. Now Boise uh, High School and the Boise School District uh, weighed into that issue. We'll have coverage on Monday. Yep. Students all across the state getting geared up to go back to school, teachers and principals back in school. Uh, enjoy these last few days of summer and have an awesome school year ahead. But as always, the homepage is the place to find all of our top stories, IdahoEdNews.org. If you're on Twitter and want to give us a follow, at IdahoEdNews, we break our stories there and live tweet some of the big meetings. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for joining us on this edition, of, this edition of Extra Credit. We always have a lot of fun breaking down this complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.